Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Hey, everybody, it's Reed. Before we get started, I just want to remind everyone that the fight that we're facing is not about right versus left. And it's not about Republicans versus Democrats. It's about democracy versus authoritarianism. And never, ever let anybody tell you different. The next 18 months will be the most crucial months in American political history since 1860. Think about that, gang. Now is the time to get involved. Go to jointheunion.us and sign up to be part of the pro-democracy army that will lead us to victory next year. And now, on with the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm once again joined by Matt Bennett, co-founder and executive vice president for public affairs at Third Way a national think tank that champions modern center-left ideas. Prior to his time at Third Way, he's worked on a variety of campaigns, including the presidential campaigns of Michael Dukakis and Bill Clinton, where he went on to serve as deputy assistant to the president for intergovernmental affairs at the White House. He has a bachelor's degree in history from the University of Pennsylvania and a JD from the University of Virginia Law School. Matt, welcome back. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. All right, so Matt, today I want to talk about this idea that percolates every four years around this time, which is who will be the third party savior in the next presidential election. It happens all the time. It's happened in 1980. It happened in 92 and 96. You know, we've always had third party candidates like the Greens and the Libertarians. You know, some people say, but for Ralph Nader, Al Gore is president because he wins Florida outright. Some people say, but for Gary Johnson and Jill Stein, Hillary Clinton is president. But those are, you know, the Libertarians and the Greens are sort of the perennial third party candidates. I feel like this sort of sometimes get their votes no matter what. But let's talk about the people who say, I could take a little bit from over here and a little bit from over there, and I can cobble together this coalition that has never existed in American politics, at least in presidential politics, doesn't exist now but has the opportunity to play spoiler, I would posit, and the report that you all put out in December by Eliza Astro, that the dangerous illusion of a presidential third party in 2024. So give us a sense of what your report says, and I'll go through it. Well, to your exact point, every cycle, there's people who say, this is the cycle when a third party candidate can actually win the election. And there's a small problem with that theory, which is that not only has it never happened, it has never come even close to happening. So we have a guy who was literally carved into Mount Rushmore, who tried to run as a third party candidate four years after leaving office as one of the most popular presidents in history. Teddy Roosevelt ran on the bull moose ticket and lost. Since then, if you add together all of the electoral votes won by all of the third party candidates, including Roosevelt, it does not add up to the 270 you would need to win the election. So let's be clear. A third-party candidate is not going to win the election. 
However, all of the things that you named in your intro, all those third-party candidates who you named had impact on the election. Several of them acted as spoilers. I mean, Ralph Nader got 90,000 votes in Florida and Gore lost Florida by 557 votes. So you can definitely sway the outcome of the election, but you can't win it. And that's our big concern. Right. So before we get into the meat of your report, let's talk a little bit about the process. So in full disclosure, as I think the listeners have heard before, before we started the Lincoln Project, I spent two solid years in the third party and independent space. And I do believe in my core that American voters deserve more choices than they have. And I tried for two years to make that happen. I got ballot access in New York State. It lasted exactly four years. They changed the rules to make it harder, and now it's gone. The two-party system has built up a significant immune response system to this. We are not a parliamentary system, Matt, right? We don't elect party lines, and then you send that representative to Washington, D.C., and they elect a prime minister like you see in England or other places. And both the Republican and the Democratic parties have made it very, very difficult to get what we call ballot access, the ability to have Reed's party appear in the state of Wisconsin or wherever it might be, specifically to reduce the amount of competition they might get. Also, the last major new party we had in this country was a party called the Republican Party, and it appeared in 1854. So we're not exactly the kind of people who are always going around and looking. I think also, you know, look, you probably travel the country a lot. I travel the country a lot. And whether or not it's Democrats I talk to, which is a lot more than I used to, or my old Republican friends, nobody's happy with their party. And maybe that's true. Maybe you've got some research that shows that that's at a high. But I don't think it's ever been that different. Americans are preternaturally disposed to be fickle about government, right? Like, I mean, literally, that's why we exist as a nation, because we didn't like people telling us what to do. So you've got this idea of we want a third option, a third real option, not a green, not a libertarian, right? That's a protest vote or goes some other way because I don't like whoever I've got my choice on. But somebody who has the money, first and foremost, the organizational wherewithal and the willingness to withstand a barrage of unlike anything other in politics when you do this. Now, in 2015, as I think I've mentioned previously, there was someone who contacted me and some colleagues about potentially running as a third party candidate. And after several months and several million dollars worth of work, it was a go, no go decision, Matt. And the person literally deflated into the chair. In 2019, I helped Howard Schultz explore his potential run. And we could talk about that because, as you remember, because Schultz has been a longtime Democrat, longtime Democratic donor, and the Democratic Party and its organs and the press just were brutal to him, right? In a way that I don't think he expected. Money was never going to be an issue for him, but whether or not he was going to play spoiler was the issue, which was in a 2020 race versus at the time, remember when we started, we thought it was going to be Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren. Were you going to play spoiler for Donald Trump and elect him to a second term? Howard ultimately decides not to run. The party collapses behind Joe Biden, and we we bring us to where we are now. But that's just sort of the candidate. Then what I talked about in ballot access, all 50 states have their own rules about how this stuff works, which is actually in the Constitution. The Constitution actually states that individual states can determine the way they want to run their elections, which is why it's also very difficult Court cases typically fail as far as like, you know, oh, it's not fair. It's not fair. They're Republicans and Democrats, which I agree with. But again, 
having the backstop of the Constitution is tough for a lot of jurists. So then you have to get ballot access. And some of them have screwy rules. Some of them, you know, like Texas, you know, it's I think the first week in May. You have to have at the time, I think it's 90 or 100,000 signatures, qualified signatures of people who didn't vote for a Republican or a Democrat in a primary. You have to name your vice president. You have to name your electors. You have to do all this stuff. Right. That's the first one. And again, that comes in May. And again, you have to just withstand this immense barrage from either the Democrats or if it was a center right candidate, potentially from Republicans. But the point is, even if you get to all that, the math never works. Electorally speaking, the math never works. That is exactly right. The math never, ever works. Remember, the only way to become president is to get 270 electoral votes or to win a vote in the House of Representatives on January 6th. No third party candidate is going to do that. Anyone who tells you otherwise is kidding themselves or lying. That is not going to happen. The last third party candidate to get an electoral vote was George Wallace, and he got the electoral votes of very racist people in very southern states. And even Ross Perot, who was by far the highest performing third party candidate of the modern era, won zero electoral votes. It is not going to happen. And in 48, Strom Thurmond ran as a Dixiecrat, you know, the, the Southern basically racist ticket. Wallace did the same thing again 20 years later on segregation. They win the, basically the Confederacy. Perot, by polling at the time, as you remember, having worked for President Clinton, wins two of the three debates. The problem was he was crazy. So he dropped out because he was convinced the Bush family wanted to ambush his daughter's wedding or something. And then he gets back in. But by then, people are like, OK, you know, it's enough already. Yeah. And that often happens with third party candidates, which is the public kind of flirts with them. I think Gary Johnson polled at like 10 or 11 percent at one point during the 2016 race. And then by the time they get to actually voting, they think, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to throw in my vote on that on this guy. Most of them make that judgment. And so once again, impossible for a third party candidate to win. However, there's enough people who will pull that lever for the third party candidate that they can act as spoilers and very often do. And, and that's the concern, which is not we're worried about this person winning. It's we're worried about this person acting as a spoiler. Let's talk about that in your report again out this last December. And, and Rob, let's go ahead and put it in the show notes so everybody can read it. It's available over at thirdway.org. Your concern and one that I share personally and we as the Lincoln Project share, too, is that Quote, a well-financed third-party candidacy will most likely benefit the presumptive Republican nominee, Donald Trump, or a Trump acolyte in 2024. Walk us through your concerns. Well, first of all, it doesn't take much, right? In a close election, as we saw in 2016, even gadfly candidates like Jill Stein can have an impact on the outcome of the race. So if this race is close in 2024, and it may well be, it probably will be, then you don't have to win a lot of votes to have an impact. Second thing is this, the people who are most inclined to go for a third party candidate are those who are dissatisfied with both parties. We call them the double haters. They hate both sides. And that makes perfect sense. What happened in 2016 is the double haters had places to go. They had Gary Johnson, they had Jill Stein. Even some had Evan McMullen. Exactly. And, and Evan McMullen. And therefore, for the most part, pulled away from Hillary and voted for this third party candidate. By 2020, when there was not a credible third party candidate on the ballot, the double haters had to choose between Biden and Trump. And overwhelmingly, they went for Joe Biden because they were sick of Trump. 
our concern is if you give those people somewhere to go, the Trump voters are more passionate and more loyal than the Biden voters. And therefore, they're going to stick with their guy and, and our side may not. And that's the real danger. We've seen the same thing. I mean, ours, yours comes from research and probably long experience. Ours just comes from the gut instinct, which is the Republican Party is 95 percent white. It's homogeneous from a racial perspective. The power of the party is plutocratic and populist. They both, you know, have gravitated toward Trump's style of resentment, revanchism, ugliness, et cetera, et cetera, with, you know, tax cuts for the wealthy sprinkled in and freedom thrown all over the place to sort of make everybody feel better. But Democratic voters, I've always I've said this previously, Matt, is the strength of the Democratic coalition, the big D Democratic coalition is its diversity. The weakness of the Democratic coalition is its diversity. It's not just race, although that's a part of it. It's demographics, it's economics, it's geography. And you have to hold all those people together. And as we saw, you're right, like in 2016, for Clinton, Hillary Clinton, there were a lot of African-Americans in, say, places like Detroit that just stayed home. They might have had a third option. They took the fourth option, which was they just didn't show up. And that's also another piece of it, which is if you're a double hater, uh, maybe you're a triple hater because you just have so much loathing towards the candidates that you just stay home altogether. And I think that's the other part, too, which is don't give people the option to do something that's going to lead to a broader bad outcome. I would say this, too, you know, thinking about your report here. First of all, let's talk about a little bit about these, quote unquote, independent voters. Now, I used to be a Republican and I'm not a Democrat. I spend more time with Democrats, but I don't consider myself one. But only 9% of Americans probably fit into that truly politically homeless, out on the frontier description per your stuff, right? That's a small number, but as you rightly point out, enough. Because as we've talked about before on the show, this is a game of small numbers. This is 11,000 votes in Georgia, 60,000 votes here, 75,000 votes there, right? And so 9% in a given state that has a place to go, which you say, except for a very right-wing candidate, right? And the only person who I think could fit that mold, and I don't think right-wing is the expression, is the correct expression, but it's the best one we got, would be like a Liz Cheney. The point I think we're trying to make here is that it's, as I've said before, why, when the house is on fire, Matt, would you say, you know what, hon, we need a new kitchen? Right, exactly. And, you know, in 2020, Joe Biden won six of the seven states that were decided by three points or less. Although the North Carolina, he won every close state. If there are 9% of independents who would be open to voting for a third party because they're not beholden to one party or the other or not more inclined in those directions, then that's more than enough to kill the Democrat in those six states. And it wouldn't take all six. So this is a game of very small numbers and very small margins if you're talking about them as a spoiler. Now, again, if you're talking about them as actually winning, that's a whole different conversation. But to be a spoiler, you don't need much. Neither Stein nor Johnson were well-financed. Neither of them were particularly well-known. For most voters, they were just names on a ballot that weren't Clinton or Trump. And that was enough. And if you have somebody who has a lot of money behind them, that could be much more dangerous. So here's something that you wrote, and this, again, goes back to, I think, the nature of how the parties are made up. It says, quote, given that Trump's base of support actually expanded after four tumultuous years of his presidency, 
There is no reason to believe that some portion of his base would abandon him in 2024 for a third-party candidate. Rather, a third-party candidate would more likely divide the anti-Trump vote as it did in 2016. And from our perspective, Matt, who have made it our business to attract those vestigial Republicans, those conservative independents to say, flip it or skip it. Joe Biden is a decent guy. He's a family man. He's been a public servant forever. He probably really does care about you and your family as opposed to this other guy, we can get them across the line or we can get people to stay home as 50,000 Wisconsinites did in 2020 or tens of thousands of Georgians did in 2020 against Trump. But if you give those eight, 10 or 12%, and let's just say half of them went to Biden, just for argument's sake, well, now Biden loses by a couple hundred. Exactly. And one of the things that people don't understand about the numbers uh, is how Trump's both raw vote total and share of the electorate actually went up in places like Pennsylvania that he lost in 2020. So he wins Pennsylvania in 2016, loses it in 2020. However, he wins more votes and a higher percentage of the votes. How is that possible? It's possible because there were no third party candidates taking away from the Democrat. So Clinton's votes were led into Johnson and Stein and others. And that didn't happen in 2020. Biden wins. So we are confident that, you know, those Trump voters are likely much more likely to stick with him or if they nominate somebody else, Trumpian candidate, whereas the Democrats are more likely to fade away. And that, I think, is the big concern. On your earlier point about Cheney, I think you're right. She could actually be a problem. We don't know what a Liz Cheney candidacy would look like. The only candidate that we can possibly imagine as a third party that would be helpful is Trump himself. If Trump loses the nomination, you know, and he's like, he's so outraged that he somehow gets ballot access and runs third party. That'd be fine with us. But that's probably not going to happen. Well, look, I mean, the folks over at the Bulwark with a pollster by the name of Whit Ayers did a survey, I think, back in January, Matt, that showed that 28 percent of Trump's base of the Republican base, excuse me, said that if Trump lost the primary and decided to run as a third party, they'd go with him. To which I said, if it's 28 percent, game over. If it's 14 percent, game over. If it's 7%, game over. 3.5% game over, right? So whether or not you want to believe it, he is the gravitational force in the GOP, both electorally and ideologically. And anybody that doesn't believe that, you know, I mean, I've got a bridge to sell him because, I mean, Matt, I don't understand. You live in Washington, D.C., so maybe you get the psychosis. Just as an aside is like why people are believing like, oh, Ron DeSantis is the savior. I mean, first and foremost, as I've said previously, you got to basically be for... Trump that's less charismatic and is an ill-fitting jacket and runs it has been run through the car wash, you know, but his name isn't Donald Trump. But like, I, I don't get it because the voters, the people who actually go to a caucus or cast a ballot, don't care about any of that stuff. They like what Trump has to offer. They have not left him. And, you know, the all the people that say, oh, you know, when he gets indicted, like, no, 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 no. When he gets indicted, they will lock arms and march behind him. And all of his opponents will have to get behind him, too. Because if they're not riding in that wake, then, you know, the MAGAs and the America Firsters and everybody else, the QAnon people will go bananas. If Trump is indicted, I would make a bet that he will cut an ad touting the fact that he was indicted. He will turn that into, a, you know, a feature, not a bug of his campaign, because that's how they roll on that party. Democrats getting indicted are actually bad for them. But now in the current MAGA party and for Republicans, I think it's probably a good thing. All right. So let's let's get into some states here. Your report says, quote, and you, you rattle off 
a whole bunch of red and blue states. So I'm not going to read them all for the sake of, of our listeners' ears. But, quote, these safe red and blue states together take 289 electoral votes off the table for a third-party candidate. It's places like Alabama, Oregon, you know, the places where a Republican doesn't have a chance, Democrat doesn't have a chance. These states are loyal to the Democratic or Republican Party. This means that only 249 electoral votes could even conceivably be in play for a third-party candidate. Now, here's the other problem with that, too, which is once you've taken out all those states, the only states you really have left are the key electoral college states, Arizona, Nevada, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, North Carolina. And so now what you're saying, if you're an organization like one we know who is willing to do this, you're saying we're going to go get ballot access in these 10 states to put a third party candidate knowing full well that we can't get to 270. Yeah, that's the thing that anybody talking about third party candidates actually winning have failed to articulate a real theory of the case here because you simply can't get there from here unless you engage in magical thinking that allows you to win in a state like Oregon or Alabama. And that just ain't going to happen. You know, the, the other part too, having a phone call a couple of weeks ago with an organization that's pushing something like this told us that they had polling that showed that they understood the politics and the policy, to which we politely said, that is just not possible. Because the other part they left out too was that you actually have to have a candidate. Who is this magical person? Is it Larry Hogan from Maryland? Is it Joe Manchin from West Virginia? Is it Kristen Sinema from Arizona? Who is this magical person? And what are they going to say? Because right now, the only people pushing this, frankly, are, you know, dark money, deep pocketed donors. There's no grassroots organization amongst Gen Z on the campuses of Michigan, Michigan State, Wisconsin, you know, Penn State, the University of Texas at Austin, like being like, now is the time, right? Now is the time. We're going to draft AOC. We're going to do this. We're going to do like that. None of that is happening. And again, because the ballot access process is so arcane and expensive, unless you either are a deep pocketed person like a Howard Schultz, or you have a bunch of big money, right, which has not been disclosed. In a recent article by Puck, the expression was, quote, sometimes democracy needs anonymity, which seems to be antithetical. Um, why are you doing this? Like, what's the point? To show you can? Because none of this seems like a good idea. None of it seems rational. Yeah, it's very hard to fathom exactly what's going on here. I mean, you seem reluctant. I'm going to say there's a group, no labels. It's been very public about this, that they've raised money and are continuing to raise a lot of money. They say they're going to raise 70 plus million dollars, 50 of which they claim to already have, to gain ballot access and to nominate a slate of candidates to run in the presidential election. In fact, they've already scheduled their convention to happen in Dallas in April of next year. They've got people on the ground in a bunch of places. They've already qualified for the ballot in Colorado, and they're close, according to them, in a bunch of other places. They're paying large numbers of canvassers to go out there and get the signatures you talked about earlier. It's different in every state, but, but they're a sophisticated operation, and I have no doubt that they're going to be able to get ballot access in many places. What they cannot explain is how they get to 270. There is no way to do that. So they kind of wave their hands around about that kind of thing. And, you know, boom, we'll get 270, but there's no way to do that. And, you know, this has been one thing, you know, Matt, that we've been encountering in the last few weeks, which is a lot of calls from Republican donors going, why are you guys so anti-Republican party? I thought you guys used to be Republicans. 
isn't there anything the Democratic Party can do wrong? Isn't there anything that Biden should be criticized for? And what I say is, in the context of this moment, of the next 18 months or whatever it is, it's not about right versus left. It's not about Democrat versus Republican. It's about democracy versus authoritarianism. And my job is not to make sure the Republicans who are running for office feel good about the fact that they have swum in the Trump swimming pool for the last almost eight years, but to make sure that anybody who is going to support a man who we already know what he's tried to do, right, and damn near did it, right, they don't get a pass. And that's really hard because they're Republicans like I used to be, Matt, who desperately want the party of George W. Bush back the party of John McCain back, the party of Mitt Romney back. And it does not matter how many times we say it. It doesn't matter how many rooftops we scream from. They believe that this bipartisan fantasy land is a real thing. And anything that's going to upset that, even making sure that Donald Trump and his ilk aren't reelected or don't have a real shot, is somehow like we're the extremists now, right? It's the, it's the height of gaslighting. It truly is. I can't. First of all, let me just say on behalf of the Democratic Party that we are incredibly grateful to patriots like you guys who have seen what is going on with the Republicans and have said that you simply won't tolerate it. And I have to say, as somebody who has worked in partisan politics for my entire career, that is a really impressive and big thing to have done. But I think the other thing to keep in mind is it isn't just Trump. We talked a little bit about DeSantis, who I think is a real authoritarian in a very sure. scary way. And he digs it. He likes it. Oh, yeah. He, he, you can tell he gets off on it. But look at Nikki Haley. Nikki Haley at her announcement. Now, she's supposed to be kind of the normie Republican. At her announcement, she said that she dreamed as a little girl of growing up to be John Hagee, the pastor who the pastor is Hagee, uh, yeah. he is a Nazi sympathizing, anti-Semitic, racist lunatic. And then she goes up to New Hampshire and she appears with Don Baldock, who was rejected by this people of New Hampshire because he is a raving lunatic also when he ran last cycle. Because he said the 2020 election was stolen. Right. Yeah, he was running for Senate and Democrats beat him easily because he was so extreme. So you've got the people who are purporting to be in the kind of mainstream of the Republican Party appearing with absolute whack jobs. And, and that's true of my governor, Glenn Youngkin, helping Carrie Lake. There just is no mainstream anymore. And so I certainly understand why you are where you are. You know, for a lot of people, change is hard. I get it. I had Vicki Ward on the podcast last week, and we were talking about Trump and Kushner. And I think you get to an economic point in your life, Matt, where you can basically create your own reality. And you're able to live within that bubble. Now, a lot of people can. Most of us can these days. But it's like the thickness of that bubble to overuse a metaphor. And so when you look outside that bubble, you know, you don't like it because it's not something you can control or it's not the world you want to see. The problem is the bubble still exists in reality, whether you like it or not. And I don't know who made the famous line like you can ignore politics, but politics isn't going to ignore you. And a big part of my concern is a lot of this stuff on this third party bid this time around, and I've seen it in, in the third party stuff too, tends to be vestigial Republicans. I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that, um, generally speaking. But the one thing that they lack is a voice, right? A true voice. The other thing they lack is belief, right? Like, what do you believe in? And it's like, oh, as I said, it's a little bit right, a little bit left. It doesn't really offend. And that's the other part too, is like, there's all this fighting going on. We just want it to stop, Matt. We don't want to get our hands dirty. 
Well, sorry. It's the plutocrats that helped get us here, right? Let's not forget that. Like if the Republican Party had paid a little bit more attention to its base working class white voters, you know, maybe they wouldn't have gone screaming and running, you know, headlong towards Donald Trump when they had the opportunity. And so now here we are where you have a situation where a well-financed group using unnamed donors is willing to do this. And the folks that are most into it are the ones who would probably be okay, candidly, Matt, if Trump were president again. Because you know what? The thing they dislike about him most is that he's an embarrassment. They don't like talking about him. They don't like this sort of you know, YMCA dance. They don't like the Goonie Bird stuff, right? But if you think about the three biggest groups, interest groups that Trump needed that got him over the line in 2016, the hyper-wealthy, he gave them massive tax breaks. The extreme social right, he gave them Supreme Court justices and ultimately an abortion ban. And the working class whites, he gave them a place to channel their anger. He did for his people what he said he would do. Now, he didn't build a wall, but that was all bullshit anyway. He, never, he was never going to build a wall. He didn't care. So the wealthy are like, well, you know, I don't like Donald Trump, but Joe Biden, Matt, he's a communist. He might as well be Hugo Chavez. Right. One of the most remarkable things about the no labels bid is they are claiming bizarrely enough that they will pull the plug on this. Despite the fact that they're having a convention in April and they're going to nominate presumably a ticket and they're going to be on the ballot and spend all this money. But they're going to pull the plug if the two parties or at least one of the two parties nominates somebody that they find acceptable. What they've made clear is that Joe Biden doesn't meet their test for acceptability, which is super bizarre. I mean, Joe Biden ran as a moderate. He has governed as a mainstream moderate Democrat. And he beat Bernie Sanders. I mean, Jonathan Chait, I think, even wrote an article last week that said that Joe Biden's not a very good liberal. Right. What do these people want? So it is not at all clear to me that they can articulate. First of all, they have not said anything about policy differences. They, they haven't said what they want. All they've said is they don't want Joe Biden. And if that is their point of view, then what they're going to end up with is Donald Trump. And they're going to end up providing a stalking horse for Trump that could actually get him reelected. Yeah. And again, why would you take that chance? Again, as someone who in my core believes that Americans should have more choices, I'm like, again, we are headlong into a Thelma and Louise moment. And what you guys are saying is, no, let's press the gas pedal down and not hit the brakes. And it doesn't make any sense to me because here's the other part, too, Matt, is it doesn't represent the majority view of Americans. It doesn't represent even a substantial minority view of Americans. All it needs to represent is a tiny slice of the electorate, and that could be enough. And, you know, I actually went and talked to Howard Schultz also early in his process of thinking about running in 2020. This was before Biden had even announced. And what I said to him was, you're a moderate Democrat. I'm a moderate Democrat. Run as a moderate Democrat. We could use you in the race. But if you choose to run as a third party candidate, understand that you are risking the future of the republic. And at that point, all we knew was that Trump was a super bad president. We didn't know about January 6th. We didn't know about his you know, constant attempts to destroy our democracy in really profound ways. So what I would say to anyone considering accepting the nomination of a third party, remember what I said to Schultz is, uh, one, we're dueling on the edge of a volcano here. 
don't be the one that pushes us into the volcano. And two, I said, if you do this and you are a spoiler, not only will you lose all of your friends, your kids will lose all of their friends. I mean, you will, you will destroy your, your entire world. And I would say to anyone thinking about this, that that will be true for them too. You know, that goes back to something that you and I have seen up close and personal on several occasions, which is it's all well and good whether or not your name is Howard Schultz or your name is Joe Manchin, to say that you're thinking about doing this. It's a whole other deal once you start doing it, right? Because the presidential campaign meat grinder is unlike anything else in humankind when it comes to politics. To do it as a third-party candidate where, you know, your claim to fame is either, okay, I'm from West Virginia, but I have no hope whatsoever of winning West Virginia, or you're Kristen Cinema and your claim to fame is that you used to be a green and now you're an independent and you gave away the store to the carried interest guys. So the Wall Street loves you. Like there's nothing that can prepare you for the ugliness that's coming your way. And again, just to go back, and I think it's important to put a point on this because in that, there's a political article, I think, from December of last year also about no labels that said they're going to go for ballot access in 10 states. It's not enough. And if you're not going to run to win, then why are you running at all? They've since said they're going to try to get on in a majority of states and in enough states to get to 270. Yeah, but a majority of states could mean a whole bunch of places like the Dakotas, Wyoming, Montana, Idaho, right? Like. That's five right there. Right. And you, you can't get there without California, New York, or Texas. I mean, you just can't. And there is just simply no way the third-party candidate is going to win any of those states. So I think we have conclusively determined there's no way for these guys to win it. The question is, therefore, then what are you doing? And don't you understand that you are going to be providing a stalking horse for Donald Trump? Do you not get that? And I think to be fair, some of them are true believers and they, they just don't buy our, our argument. But there are others who are, who are more cynical that are in that world, maybe as donors, uh, who do think that this could be valuable as a way to help reelect Trump. You know, I, I remember years ago, maybe not years ago, it was summer of 21. So a couple of years ago now, Matt, I was in D.C. with my younger daughter and we were at Maryland someplace with some friends. And, you know, it's like this pool setting. It's very sort of bougie. And I see a guy I'd done some work with previously in Maryland. He said, oh, yeah, and this is so-and-so. He's a lobbyist for a major company. I'm like, oh, hey, it's great to meet you. Yada, yada. He, goes, he goes, yeah, what you guys did was amazing, but boy, Biden's nuts. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And he goes, well, you know, they want to do this and they want to do that. And they want to, you know, they're talking about this regulation. I'm like, listen, I don't know anything about any of this, but here's what I do know. You guys haven't seen a comma, a period, a semicolon of regulation in like 20 freaking years. So just because you haven't had any doesn't mean some small part of it is the end of the world. Now, it might be to you because you're a corporate lobbyist, but like it was such an insidery view of the machine that makes Washington work, right? It's, it's way, 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 way. You're supposed to leave us alone, Matt. You're not supposed to come in and actually want to do something. Yeah. I mean, look at what's happening in East Palestine. Like the Republicans are going in there and harumphing about Biden not being there and Buttigieg. And, I mean, one of the reasons for that accident was that Trump vetoed essentially regulations that would have required more safety controls for these kinds of trains. So if you don't like regulation, then you got to accept that these kinds of accidents are going to happen as a direct result of failing to regulate properly. Hey, look, it's freedom, man. As Janis Joplin said, sometimes freedom means having nothing left to lose, especially if you live in East Palestine, Ohio. Exactly. But if, if there's 
you know, the Republican lobbyists would stipulate, okay, yeah, I can put up with some of these derailments as long as the, there's fewer regulations, then okay, at least that's intellectually coherent. But doing what J.D. Vance is doing and what Trump is doing and demagoguing around this accident and failing to stipulate that it's because of your point of view that it happened, that's just ridiculous. This weekend, I was hanging out with a buddy of mine, Matt. Um, he's a Republican. He's a famous, I don't want Trump Republican, but still can regurgitate Fox News talking points better than anybody. Of course, unfortunately, I know them as well as anybody. And he said, well, it took Buttigieg long enough to get to Ohio. And I said, that doesn't really matter. I said, what I think you should probably focus on is who thought it was a good idea from Norfolk Southern to say, hey, here's a big puddle of toxic crap. Let's throw a match in it. And I was like, buddy, that's the kind of stuff that makes me want to turn damn near into a revolutionary. And you know what he said? Me too. Well, the other weird thing about the current Republican Party is that right-wing populists hate all institutions, including corporations. So I don't think your lobbyist friend is moving in this direction. But I think one thing that corporate America has failed to come to grips with, even if they think that Biden went too far with the Inflation Reduction Act or whatever, they don't understand that we live in a new world, that Paul Ryan's party, your party, is gone, is dead. And the people currently representing the Republican Party do not care about what corporations want or think or need. Um, and what they're simply demagoguing these issues so that they can generate more likes on right-wing Twitter. Right, because the East Palestine example that you brought up was not about Norfolk Southern being deregulated or its employees bad behavior and lighting this stuff on fire or matt it's people going door to door offering thousand dollar checks but also getting people to sign legal releases and waivers of their rights without telling people what they were so like i look i don't know about you i spent a lot of time with corporate america in a different period a younger period of my life like none of this it all surprises me not one lick of it Right. But what has been interesting to your point is, you know, when you have the left in the White House and Fox News kicking the shit out of Norfolk Southern. Right. Like, it's hilarious. But I mean, what did Trump do for the individuals in East Palestine, Ohio? And maybe they are great analogs for Americans left behind. Right. Not just of white Americans left behind, but many Americans left behind. What did Trump's presidency do for any of those people other than make them feel like you know, like Johnson said, you know, every man a king who has someone to look down on. Right. That's what he did for them. And literally nothing else. I mean, everything he purported to be doing for these communities was either a lie or an overstatement. I mean, remember when he went, I think, to Ohio and elsewhere in Ohio and claimed that he was saving the jobs of 200 workers at a plant that made refrigerators. And then, of course, those jobs went to Mexico like six months later. So it was 200 jobs in a nation of 330 plus million, and it wasn't true. That was Trump's approach to the left behind communities in a nutshell. It was, you love my rhetoric, you love my anger, but I got nothing for you substantively. I mean, you noted that Trump didn't build the wall. It was bullshit. However, the wall was a brilliant metaphor that he used in the campaign and then all through his presidency, because it wasn't just about a physical barrier on the southern border. It was about building a wall around America, around those communities. We we're going to keep the foreigners out. We we're going to keep trade out. We we're going to bring the troops home. We we're going to protect you. Now, none of it was true. Much of it was racist, but it was very effective as a mechanism to trigger guys like that who 
They figure none of these people, Democrats, Republicans, none of them have my back economically or culturally for that matter. Yeah, exactly. And so when you try to make reasoned arguments with them and go to them and say, like, look what Joe Biden has done. We passed $1.5 trillion in spending that's going to be in these communities creating really good jobs. That's a tough sell that Democrats are really going to have to try to figure out how to do. You know, the other part, too, thinking about Trump is we're thinking about a third potential third party run is one is that Trump has as talented a people around him now as he has since he first ran. They know their business. These people know how this stuff works. I could make an argument that if a third party candidate gets on the ballot, you could have Trump go and said, you don't like me, vote for them. You don't like me, vote for them. Do anything but vote for Joe Biden. You don't want Joe Biden. I don't want Joe Biden. That guy doesn't want Joe Biden. Now, who knows how it would work out, but you could absolutely see him turning the jujitsu. And why would he do it, Matt? Because, and this is something else Vicky said to me the other day, we have to think about that he's not a politician. He's a New York real estate developer. There's not a back he hasn't stabbed. There's not a lie he hasn't told. There's not someone he hasn't screwed over. He'll do anything. And if he can take that third party option and maneuver it into a place where it picks up five, six, seven percent of votes that Biden would have gotten, but now doesn't, that's it. That's the ballgame. And not by a little, but by a lot. By a huge margin. I mean, all you need is to be Jill Stein. And if you end up as Ross Perot or or Ralph Nader, you're going to swing the election to Trump. And if you're on a ticket backed by, you know, 70 plus million dollars to start, I think there'd be a lot more where that came from, then you're going to look more like Nader than you do like Stein. And that is why it is so scary. And the thing that we are trying to do the reason we put this report out, the reason we're talking about this so much is that we need to make sure that people understand this isn't about winning the election. This is about a stalking horse for Trump. And those two things are in total contrast. And even if we can't convince the donors to no labels, we need to convince the rest of the kind of political sphere that this is not on the level. This is really about helping Republicans. So let me ask one last thing, and I brought this up a little bit earlier, but I want to tap into your inside the Beltway knowledge, which is Mark McKinnon just had a piece in Vanity Fair. Now, McKinnon admittedly was on the board of No Labels for a while. David Brooks put out a thing, you know, in the Times, but he's written that article 800 times, so I guess it doesn't matter. What is the psychology of the magical thinking? I mean, explain it to me because I'm banging my head against a wall right? And trying to figure it out. And maybe it's, look, I walked down the path so long ago, right? As somebody said, oh, you guys are bipartisan, you're nonpartisan. I said, oh, no, 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 we are very partisan. We're not Republicans or Democrats, but we're very partisan just on behalf of democracy. Oh, you know, but there's someone more reasonable. I'm like, that's not a thing, right? That's like really not a thing that people want. People don't go, oh, you know, he's more reasonable. They only do when faced with a binary choice And one choice that is so anathema to their belief system that they won't go for it. You know, look, Biden didn't win by that much in 2020, right? That's the other part, too. Like, they ran the Bernie Sanders playbook against Biden in 20, and it almost worked. Amazingly so. I mean, he won by a tiny margin. As we noted, there were seven states that went by three points or less, and he won by a very small margin. So why do people like Brooks and McKinnon why are they taken in by this? And what is it with this wish casting that they're doing? I haven't the faintest idea. I don't know why these two sophisticated guys haven't sat down for five minutes with one of those interactive maps that you get from 270 to win and colored them in and be like, oh, no, that's not possible. You can't get there from here. 
somehow they were bamboozled by this kind of bizarro world polling happening, you know, three years before the election, which is totally worthless, into thinking that somebody could catch fire. And that is just ridiculous. Well, and as we noted at the top, and I've seen this personally, and you've seen it a lot too, is when you ask voters, would you vote for the Republican, the Democrat, or the Independent, or would you like a qualified third choice? They always say yes. Of course they do. Sure. And then you ask, would you vote for this person? And it plummets. Right. right? Because to your point about the wasted vote, nobody wants to think that their vote didn't count for something. Exactly. And that happens in polling, too. I mean, when you've got big time third party candidates like Perot, they tend to poll very high at certain points in the election. And then comes time to actually voting, their support craters. Now, Perot, as you noted, had some mental health problems. uh, But Whenever there's somebody very big and credible, or at least credible as a third party candidate like Nader, they go from polling at an interesting level, never majority, but interesting, and then it just falls off a cliff. The problem is it doesn't fall all the way off the cliff. It falls down to a point where they can be spoilers. But yeah, I mean, 92 was, you know, an interesting time. Clinton, I don't want to say came out of nowhere, but no one probably, you know, a year prior thought he was going to be the nominee, let alone the president. You know, George H.W. Bush's first term was sort of Reagan's third term. Um, And it was a very transitional time, right? The wall had fallen. The Internet and, you know, the technology revolution was about to happen. And it was a brave new world out there. And so maybe Americans sort of writ large were looking for something else. Now, I will just say as an aside, Matt, if you go back and you look at Perot's presentation where he literally bought 30 minutes of airtime, which, you know, it sat there like he makes sense in retrospect. Oh, yeah. He had a theory of his uh, of the case, right? If Wallace was running basically on segregation, Perot was running on the debt and on trade, two things he hated. And I didn't agree with him on either thing, but he had a coherent worldview that was driving him. And to your point, 1992, we were coming out of a recession, so people were not particularly happy with Republicans. They'd been in power for 12 years. Clinton had kind of stumbled through the primaries and didn't come into the general election with a huge head of steam behind him because he had had all kinds of things he had to get past. And so people were kind of looking for a third party alternative on some people were. And that's why Perot at one point, I think, pulled at like 42 percent. He really did pretty well, ended up with zero electoral votes. But that's the thing, too, though, is that one of our guys, Trigby Olson, did some research. A third party candidate has to not only get to what we found was 43 percent, Matt, but they have to stay there. 43% nationally. Ain't gonna happen. And that was, 92 was like a a completely different world than we're in right now. I mean, like you couldn't have two elections as different as 92 and 2024. So there is zero chance that anyone will catch fire, even to the extent that Perot did. And if they do, they end up with zero electoral votes anyway. Right. Well, Matt, as always, it's always great to have you and your perspective and that of Third Ways on the show. Before we let you go, where can we find you online and where can we find Third Ways work? On Twitter at Third Way Matt B. And Third Way is thirdway.org. And that report you mentioned is on our homepage. Awesome. As always, gang, you can find me on Twitter and TikTok at Reed Galen, on Instagram at Reed underscore Galen underscore LP. Matt Bennett, thanks for joining me and everybody else. We'll see you next time. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. 
don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter, at Project Lincoln, and for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. If you want to message the podcast directly, please send an email to podcast at lincolnproject.us. And if you want to personally join the fight to save our nation's democracy, visit jointheunion.us. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. I'll see you on the next episode. Thank you.